Our reading this morning uh, will be from Genesis 1 and 2. We'll start in Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Let's go down to verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Down to verse 15 in chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. It's the word of God. Thanks be to God. Well, God speaks to us through his word. That's how His Spirit works, is through it, so that we would know the good news of Jesus, that we would believe in Him, and that we would grow in Him. So let's pray as we turn to the Word. Father, we need You to work through Your Word. How else will we know You if You have not spoken? But You have spoken. You've not left us in the dark. You've given us Your Scriptures, so we pray that Your Spirit but illuminate it for us this morning, we ask, for Christ's sake. Amen. I don't know if, you're in, if you have thought much about the history of sitcoms, right? But the, the sitcom start, started really in the home. And for a long time, most sitcoms were set in the home. I mean, whether it was The Honeymooners or I Love Lucy or The Brady Bunch or The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, if you're more my generation... It was almost always in the home until around the late 80s and 90s it started to shift and more and more of the workplace came into focus. So that probably reached its peak with the office, right, which was exclusively set in the office. Uh, You know, that very rarely did you ever get a glimpse into anybody's home life. It was almost all set in the workspace. Um, That mirrors, I think, in some ways how we think about work. Of course, everybody's always worked. (laughs) In fact, probably for most of history, people worked longer hours than many of us ever do. And yet, it's accelerated, right? Our sense of the meaning of work, of our significance being in what we do, has grown over the years. And particularly, I think, in American culture, a can-do-it kind of culture, right? We think that what we accomplish... It's what defines us. So that we, when we think about work, we are often mostly focused on success. And so we confuse success for fulfillment. Something also strange is, there's also something strange about the way we rest. Because we have a culture of leisure as well. That... (laughs) 
We are, we are aiming for retirement. Retirement was, is certainly a modern novelty <laughs> that most cultures never really thought about ever doing. Uh, but we're aiming for that. We want that. I used to work with college students. And they would work and work and work and work until the end of the semester. And then all they wanted to do was just drop everything for weeks. And so we have bizarrely then a, a culture of sort of binge work and binge rest. And never really asking if that kind of binge work is actually as productive as we think it is. Or if our binge resting is actually as restful as we think it is. See, we've been thinking for the last several weeks about creation. And I've probably been annoying you with all these sort of bits and pieces out of chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. And I'm sorry, not sorry about that. But we're, we're trying to pick up these major themes out, out of the story of creation. And this is our last week in these two chapters. We'll get into chapter 3 next week. But this week, after thinking about being created for God's glory, being created in His image, and being created for relationships, we're also going to think about how we're created for work and rest. We'll think about how work is a good thing, how rest is a good thing, and how the rhythm of work and rest is a very good thing. So work, rest, rhythm. So God works. Did you notice this? And this is unique. A few weeks back, I quoted from the Enuma Elish to you, which is this Babylonian creation myth. I know you all went and looked it up, but so you already know this. But what, one of the fascinating things about that story, uh, for a lot of different reasons when you're reading Genesis 1 and 2, uh, is the way in which it contrasts, uh, not, not just the ways in which there are some similarities, but the ways it contrasts. And one of the interesting contrasts there is that the gods make humanity so that they no longer have to work. That humans are made so that the gods can take time off. But that's not the kind of God we have here. This is a God who's invested in it. You know, a little later on, the Greeks, the ancient Greeks used to think leisure was the pinnacle of life. That really was what you wanted. That was the most desirable life, was to not really have to work. But that's not the kind of God here. See, because God in the creation story, on the one hand, labor is not toil for him. He's not working laboriously, right? Like he's not, God's not working up a sweat. He speaks and it's made, right? It's not difficult for him, and yet, and so he's above it all, but yet he's deeply invested in it. So invested, he might even show up in it. God is invested in his work. And so he too, when he makes us in his image, he calls us to that work. Now in chapter 1, where we get this view from the divine throne room, the way that that's framed is in royal language. When he creates humanity in his image, he says then have dominion. Have dominion, right? So, so we are, like him, supposed to ex- <laughs> rule over the world as if, like kind of vice regents of God. But then we talked about this already in a previous sermon. When you get to chapter 2, the, the focus shifts, the perspective changes, and the task immediately before Adam and Eve 
as those exercising dominion, royal authority over the world, is to become gardeners. To work and to keep it. So that's chapter 2, verse 15. And so you see then, to be made in God's image means that we are supposed to have perspective as well, but be deeply invested in what it is that we do. We're not above work. In fact, work is good. Work is dignifying. Right? We thought about this a little bit when we talked about being made in His image, that we're made to care for the creation in ways that exercise competence and creativity. These are all good things. This is what it means to be made after God's image. In fact, one author writing about the Bible and work says, without meaningful work, we sense significant inner loss and emptiness. People who are cut off from work become, because of physical or other reasons, quickly discover how much they need work to thrive emotionally, physically, spiritually. Work is what we're made for. It's not the only thing we're made for, (laughs) but it is one of the main things. We're supposed to be working. It gives dignity to our lives, doesn't it? If you've ever been unemployed for any period of time, you know the feeling of like, what am I doing here? What is going on? What is my life about? Now, there might be problems bound up into all those attitudes, but that idea that this is really important, this is an important aspect, a significant, meaningful thing that I do, is central. So when we do work well, then we're caring for the world, right? Understanding that we are God's vice regents. We're supposed to care for it. Not exploit it. The ancient world knew a lot about bad kings, about tyrants, about those who use their power to exploit others. But they also knew about kings who were good, that actually cared about people, that cared about those who were under their rule, that cared about the, the you know, flourishing, the thriving of their kingdom. And that, of course, is the ideal. As we've said before, that's why the gardening metaphor is so helpful, right? The idea is you are tending to, caring for what is growing. And so, as we said before, too, that means competence, right? We have to understand it. We see Adam naming the animals, thinking through what they're about. And being competent means doing a job well, right? Not merely because it will earn us more, though that might help with your earnings if you're competent at your job. Uh, it means not merely doing your job with competence because you're going to have more self-respect, but rather exercising competence because we already know the dignity God has given us. You see the difference? It's a big difference. Because one says, I'm not dignified until I'm the best. And the other says, God has given me dignity, therefore I'm going to pursue excellence. That is is a world of difference. Those who are seeking competence because their confidence in Christ know that their work is about honoring God, not finding honor for themselves. I mean, recognition is a fine thing in your career. But sometimes those who are doing the right thing don't get recognized. 
Sometimes they get fired. But those who know that their work comes out of the dignity God has given them have confidence to do what is needed to pursue doing it well, even if that is hard. The Reformation and Reformed churches since have often talked about jobs as vocations, meaning a calling. And not just, like, not just a career. I mean, you can be, there are lots of aspects of life that are a calling. And even if you work in the home, that's a calling. Meaning it's something that God has given you. Something God's put before you to do. And the thing about a calling is sometimes you've had a, had a lot of input. <laughs> a lot of decisions to make to find your way there. Sometimes it's kind of given to you. You know, you're a kid, you're a student. That's your calling. And you didn't exactly choose all that, but that's your calling for the time being. As you get older as a student, right, you get to choose a little more. You figure out your major when you're in college, right? You start to choose some of those things. You start to make life choices. Sometimes you have a wide array of choices. Sometimes it seems like it's a really limited number. But either way, it's a calling from God. It is still what God has given you to do. And that competence piece is so important. You know, sometimes you see different companies that advertise themselves as Christian companies. Now, nothing inherently wrong with that. Certainly nothing wrong with wanting to encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? But the first question I always want to know is, but do you do a good job, right? Because, you know, if you slap a Christian label on it, but you don't do it well, it's not actually honoring to God. I want to know, are they competent at the task? And, and then do we do it creatively? I mean, this is one of the reasons why we know God loves the arts. I mean, God made all this. <laughs> you ever seen a sunset? You know, I mean, God is creative. God loves the arts. But that doesn't mean, like, everybody's got to be an artist. It doesn't even mean that you have to kind of master novelty in your field. But it does mean that whatever it is that we're doing, we're thinking about it in a way that is concerned with the outcome. Which means we don't simply reproduce what's always been done, but rather we're thinking through the challenges in a creative way. How can we overcome this? How can we do this better? What would it look like to really do this the way it should be done? That's the kind of creativity we're called to. Now, as we've already kind of noted along the way, Sometimes our understanding of our work takes a wrong turn. <laughs> we'll get to Genesis 3 and see more of the inner dynamics of this in a bit, right? But sometimes we start to think about our work as the place we get our significance. And again, whether that's out in a job or whether that is working at home, whether that is being a student, whatever it may be, we have the funniest and yet pervasive way of making our significance out of what we've accomplished. Which is to say, boy, that's fragile, isn't it? And we want to stay busy. Oh, man. The sure sign of idolatry 
is busyness. I could be busy doing all these different things. There was an opinion piece in the New York Times by a guy named Tim Kreider a while back called The Busy Trap. This is what he says, Busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you're so busy, completely booked, in demand, every hour of the day. If I'm busy... I'm sure, you know, surely things must be good, right? Like I must be doing something meaningful. Now, the funny thing about living through a pandemic, right, is that everything came to a screeching halt for a while, it felt like. And we weren't as busy. But I think for most of us, what came in, that, in the wake of that was a sense of loss. I've lost something. What did I lose? Now, some of that was connections with friends and things like that that were good. And it is a burden to live without those close connections. It's a burden not to be able to just hug somebody that you care about. Yet, when you look at your calendar and you think, oh, I wish we were doing all these other things, we're belying the fact that we trust in all that we're accomplishing to give us significance. We prove how much we invest in what we do. It's really simple. We define our lives by what we accomplish. And I don't need to tell you that because every commercial out there tells you that. Every movie you watch tells you that. That what you do is what gives you meaning And look, you can be a student and it becomes really obvious, right? They stick a grade on it. Or you make that team. Or you get invited to that party or whatever the case may be, right? It's really obvious. It gets a little less obvious maybe as you go through a career. It's a little less day-to-day, isn't it? But you still have performance reviews. You still have, you know, annual pay raises, Incentives of that sort. You still get recognized or not recognized. Your family, are they doing well or not? (laughs) Or are they responding to you as you think they ought to respond to you? Um, The social impact that you make, that's another calling in life. One that has become, I think, more and more pronounced, and there is a right-wing way of thinking about that and a left-wing way of thinking about that. But, and I'm not trying to tell anybody what their politics ought to be, just to recognize that our sense of what we're, the impact we're making socially is a calling and fine enough. But it becomes an idol when our sense of significance and importance is attached to whether we're successful in it or not. Of course, we want to be successful in all these different areas of life. But is your sense of your value attached to that? So a helpful rubric, I think, for thinking through what a healthy understanding of your vocation looks like comes from this book, Kingdom Calling by Amy Sherman. And she talks about kingdom work, work that's really defined around God, 
has, moves us three different ways. First, it moves us up. That is to say, it moves us towards God and towards His perspective on what we're trying to accomplish. It moves us in, in the sense that we are looking at whether we are growing out of what we're doing. Again, not defining our sense of meaning, right? That's why that comes after up. <laughs> but, it, but whether it is actually helping us to grow. And of course, I mean, I think we've all seen people who have, whose vocations have done some ugly things to who they are, right? But a healthy vocation is one in which we are growing ourselves. And then, of course, it moves us out to better the lives of others. Then a healthy vocation will help us think and always moves in those three ways. And it may be some aspect of that that particularly attracts you at first, but we ought to be looking for that upward movement, that inward movement, and that outward movement. If you're trying to think through what's going on in your life. So work is good, but rest is good also. Of course, this is uh, at the very end of chapter 1. Verse 31, God looks and he sees that everything he made, he's been saying all along, it's good, it's good, it's good. And he looks and he says, it's very good. This is really good. Everything that's been made. And then, as you get starting to chapter 2, then he rests on the seventh day. And we talked about this in a previous sermon, that this is a royal rest, right? This isn't God exhausted. That was so exhausting to make everything that I just spoke into existence. No. God's not burned out. God is a king who has consolidated his reign and then sits on his throne to rule over it. This is a royal consummation. This is God in control. And so what he does is he has made the whole world to be his palace, the whole world to be his temple. The whole world is supposed to be sacred space. And then he creates sacred time. The Jewish commentators call the Sabbath a temple in time. It is a moment where we stop from all of our labor to appreciate who God is and what he has done. That's really important to understand. There's actually a whole... You know, the Sabbath becomes a really important theme throughout the Old Testament. Of course, the Sabbath gets enshrined as part of the moral law. It's the fourth commandment out of the ten. Even though Christians often overlook it now. It's one of the ten commandments, right? It also, there's also becomes this whole cycle in the Mosaic law of Sabbath. So there's the weekly Sabbath. And then there's supposed to be a Sabbath year, every seventh year, where you're supposed to let your land go untilled, and just live off of whatever grows wild. It's actually a pretty good ecological practice, pretty good farming practice, it turns out. But the point was that even the land would get rest. And then after seven Sabbath years, there would be a year of jubilee when those who were were indentured servants, who had had to become servants because of debt, were set free all their debt. It had the social impact. We could go on a long time about the Sabbath and how it works. 
One of the fascinating things we see in the New Testament, though, is it shifts to the first day of the week. You see this in Acts 20, uh, verse 7. You see this in 1 Corinthians 16, 2. And it goes basically, with. Uh, it, it, there's no comment on why this happens. <laughs> no commentary, I should say. Other than the obvious fact that Jesus was resurrected, so that the Sabbath was instituted at the great work of creation, and the Sabbath changed to reflect the completion of the great work of redemption on the first day. But whatever the case is, and however we make sense out of all of that, it is clear this, that while resting physically is important and necessary, and obviously we all need to rest from time to time. I'm a big fan of the Sunday afternoon nap. Um, I think every minister is a big fan of the Sunday afternoon nap. What rest is really about, what, may, what the physical rest gives us the opportunity to do, is to pay attention. To pay attention to who God is. There's a, a great little book on the Sabbath called The Rest of God by Mark Buchanan. And this is what he says, Sabbath is both a day and an attitude to nourish such stillness. It is both time on a calendar and a disposition of the heart. It is a day we enter, but just as much a way we see. Sabbath imparts the rest of God, actual, physical, mental, spiritual rest, but also the rest of God, the things of God's nature and presence we miss in our busyness. Get what he's saying? That the Sabbath is not given to you just so you can have a day off, however good that is, but so that you would see Him. I think this is echoed in Psalm 46.10, right? The famous line, Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. The Sabbath then, we've got to say, is a problem for us. Because the one thing that our busyness also provides, besides a sense of meaning, is a sense of always having something else to distract us. And what the Sabbath calls us to, what the Sabbath actually is, is an act of revolt against the clamor, against all the noise. And that noise is just as much of an existential threat to us as staying busy. Because it is when you stop and listen that we have to ask the big questions. We have to think about the big things. You know this experience, right, of laying in bed and you can't turn off your mind. Because it's when you're in bed or it's when you're in the shower that the things you're able to push out of your mind by flipping on your phone, the things you're able to push out of your mind by staying busy, kind of running around, getting a lot of things done, they come crowding in. And what the Sabbath offers us is a way to reframe all of it. That just as God has given us a calling, He's also given us rest. That it is enough. That what you've done is enough. 
and it will be okay. Rest in me. Rest in me. It's only by resting in Him that we actually gain hope. Because when things are difficult in our various callings, in our various vocations, that's when we need rest the most. Because we need the hope that it provides, that God has given us unearned rest. You know, in the ancient world, there was no such thing as a routine day off. But God gave to His people the blessing to stop and reflect on Him. It is not just to say this is a time you can stop and figure out all those problems that it's hard to figure out when you're at work. It is to say, no, this is a time to stop and reflect on God and all that He has done. So the theologian Richard Gaffin says, every time we neglect to consecrate the Sabbath day to God, we are actually stealing hope from ourselves. Every time we fail to keep the day holy to God, we actually obscure our witness to the world of the hope we have in Christ. In a busy, busy, busy world, right? The Sabbath teaches us something essential about grace about the very heart of God, that rest is given to you. It isn't earned. A few years ago, Adrian and I were with a few other couples, and we were talking about, are you the type of person that lives to work or that works to live? Some of you are absolutely convinced what the right answer is. And you might be wrong. I mean, look, if, you, if you're the kind of person that lives to work, what that means, of course, is that you love working. You love doing something. You love accomplishing something. You, get, you love getting stuff done. Awesome. People that say they work to live mean they love leisure. And leisure is the cheap knockoff of rest. Right? It's the ability to just like burn through a show on Netflix but then feel like, what did I do all day? Right? It is a, it, leisure is just lying around, but then thinking, I wish I had done something for my soul. So, look, if you're the person that, lo- that lives to work, you need to take the Sabbath. <laughs> for the obvious reason that you need to stop. You need to focus on the Lord. But even if you're a person that works to live, you need to take a real Sabbath to focus on the Lord. You see, the Sabbath is not found in a vacation. Though that may be helpful, and vacations are a good thing. (laughs) It is found in meeting the Lord. It is found when we reorient our whole lives. And so the Sabbath takes preparation. It takes preparation so that you don't actually find yourself caught up with all this work that you need to get done. That's probably the obvious point. But it also takes preparation for your heart. You say, I'm, com- I'm, I'm coming to this day to be reoriented. To see life differently. And so you can see why we're getting this, to this last point, the rhythm. 
Because, the, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's so clear and so beautiful in Genesis 1 and 2 what we're supposed to do. We are supposed to exercise the God-given calling, then be able to enjoy that, <laughs> to, to step back from it, enjoy it, exercise the God-given rest, and be motivated to go back into that work again and to come back and rest again, right? You, you get the idea, right? Back and forth, back and forth. But of course, it doesn't work that way often, does it? Because we've invested meaning in work so that we don't work well, we work to become worthy, that work is frustrating, that it never seems to be over, that we can never seem to stop. And it's because we invest rest with a kind of selfish leisure that we never actually recover. Not really. And so that cycle is frustrated over and over and over again. But what we're told at the end of the Bible, when we see that all of the new heavens and the new earth is this garden that's filled with God's glory, is that it is also filled with His resurrected images. And look, there's a whole cottage industry of Christian books on work, especially over the last 10 to 15 years. There's been a ton of them. A lot of them are really good. Some of them are not so good. But almost all of them make this point, right, that we are made to be people that are body and soul. We're made to do work. That actually our hope is not that we go to some place where there's no longer work, but something meaningful. But it's also a place of rest because worship is at the center of it. Now, I'm not sure how it all fits together, so don't ask me you know, to be a prophet and tell you what the other side of eternity looks like. But I do know this, that we are still, we'll still be called into that. I mean, I do know this. Some of us probably need new jobs on the other side of eternity. Somebody, I'm going to have to figure out some other job to do, right? Because I don't think you'll need me anymore. But we will have something to do. In other words, the, the, our hope is still in a future where that rest and work and the rhythm of it that is fulfilling, that is confident in God, is part of our future. And so it's always helpful as we've been going through and thinking about the image of God to remember again Colossians. I quoted this a few Sundays ago. In Colossians 1, we're told that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the restoration of all that we were supposed to be. And so too, He is the first fruits from the dead that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And it's curious, out of that kind of confidence, that God gives us peace by all that He has sacrificed with His Son, that we learn to rest in who He is that we learn to rest from all that we do. And it is also because we are confident in Him and that He has achieved it all that we learn to work well again. Because later in Colossians chapter 3, he'll say this, Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. 
See, if you want to break the cycle of toxic work and toxic rest, (laughs) working so that you create a meaning for yourself and kind of lazy time off (laughs) that just leaves you more empty than you started, if you want to get out of that cycle, you need to know that your significance is bound up in Jesus. The weird thing is that will actually refresh you. That will actually propel you to something different because it changes your priorities. It allows you to see things differently. There's an old illustration uh, about coming on the scene with some folks who are building a cathedral. So let's say you walked up to somebody who was working on a cathedral. Let's say there were some, some masons there working on shaping stones that they were going to set into this cathedral. If you ask them what are they doing, they could give you a wide variety of answers. One guy could tell you, well, I'm shaping this stone to place right there. Which is true. Another might say, point you to the blueprint and say, well, this is, what, this is the section we're working on. Okay, that's true too, right? You need to do the work of shaping. You need to know the plan. But another might tell you that I'm building a house for the worship of God. And that perspective makes all the difference, doesn't it? Because that's the person that will value the work that they're doing that will put their heart and soul into it, but will also be able to stop and sit back and appreciate what they're doing. You understand the difference? And those of us who are in Christ know that all that we are doing is for God's glory. It is so that we can grow in grace and so we can love our neighbor. And that reorients our sense of work. That doesn't mean, look, it doesn't mean work's going to be easy. That doesn't mean all the questions are going to be simple. But it does mean you know where to go to find your orientation. It does mean that you've got a compass for how to chart the way through a difficult challenge. The answers may not be immediately obvious. But if you know who you are in Christ, if you know that your work is really meaningful because it is a God-given task, no matter what others think of it, and if you know that you can take a rest from it because it is from God, and because the best thing for your work is to appreciate all that He is and all that He's given you, then you'll be able to pray along with Moses in Psalm 90. The one psalm that Moses wrote. You can pray, let the favor of the Lord, our God, be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let's pray. Father, we work for lots of reasons. Many of them are not particularly healthy. Uh, Even those of us who know the basics of these kinds of truths struggle to live them out. So Lord, we want to be those who work for your kingdom, work to give you glory. We want to be those who work in a way in which 
our work really changes who we are for the better. And we want to be those who work so that we can love our neighbors well, so that our work would be meaningful in caring for your creation, caring for your image. And yet, Lord, we also want to be those who know how to say, it's enough. Those who know that they need to come back over and over and over again to find all the beauties of the gospel so that we're not tempted to twist work into something meaningful or ultimately defining for us, but rather something that is meaningful because it is given from you. Give us this wisdom, we pray, for the sake of your kingdom, for the honor of Christ, we ask in his name. Amen.